open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. In an effort to make more meaningful use of our spare time, we're increasingly seeking out podcasts as a way to stay informed and be entertained. Dr. Jay Sridhar was one who enjoyed listening to podcasts while on a run or during long commutes. However, he wanted to be able to spend that time listening to something related to ophthalmology, specifically his subspecialty of retina. When he couldn't find what he was looking for, he decided to fill the podcasting gap on his own. Jay, an associate professor of clinical ophthalmology at Baskin Palmer Eye Institute, is here today to talk about starting straight from the cutter's mouth, a retina podcast. He also talks to us about why he wanted to go into medicine and what got him hooked on the idea of pursuing ophthalmology. Additionally, he discusses his passion for working with residents, what qualities he values in trainees, and the importance of honesty in ophthalmology. Coming up on Off the Grid. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Welcome to Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz, and today I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Jay Sridhar. Jay is a Miami native, and he has um, done his undergrad and med school uh, and residency in Miami at, at Baskin Palmer, then did his fellowship at Will's Eye Hospital and is now back at Bascom, at, where he is an Associate Professor of Clinical Ophthalmology. Jay also is a podcaster extraordinaire, and if you'd like to listen to some of his great content, you can find that at Straight From The Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast, where they have uh, actually over 100 episodes, so a lot of good content there. Uh, with that uh, preamble, Jay, I just want to say thank you so much for being willing to come on my podcast where we get to flip the microphone around and I get to interview you a little bit today. So thank you so much. Now, Gary, thank you for having me. And uh, I'll just start again by thanking you. You were kind of the trailblazer that set the way for the rest of us who are now doing ophthalmology-related podcasts. So it was really your model and your success and what you've brought to the table from an educational standpoint that uh, inspired a lot of us. So thank you. Well, you know, it's really funny. Um, none of us, I guess maybe now we kind of know what we're doing, but we really, I think, all just sort of stumbled into podcasting. At least that's how it happened with me. Um, I saw this as, a, as an avenue for maybe some real-time content to get out to folks. Um, how did you get into podcasting? Maybe we just start there. Um, how did you get into this medium, and, and have you enjoyed it? What has it brought to you professionally? So I think like a lot of us, I started as a consumer, and I was probably late to the podcast quote-unquote revolution as a listener. I mean, I was listening to things off my desktop, you know, I, I started as business or sports things and, you know, records, radio shows. And then about probably a year into fellowship, um, I was starting to run more religiously. And some people listen to music when they run. Uh, and that's probably more typical. But I, I would listen to podcasts to try to, uh, to, to give, you know, the time some me more meaning for me. And that's when I started listening to podcasts. That's probably 2014, 2015. That's late to the show. Never planned, like you said, you kind of stumble into this, never really planned on doing my own podcast. It was actually when I was uh, planning on my job, my job was initially going to involve a lot of commuting. The way it was set up originally, I was going to be driving close to 120 miles round trip twice a week to one of our satellites. And I was just like, man, I, I cannot listen to the radio for that time. I can listen to these great podcasts, but I don't really have anything ophthalmology related. I had your podcast, which was a great resource, but 
I really was looking for something more related to my subspecialty of retina. And in the process of looking, kind of discovered there really was kind of a, a need there and, and, and an emptiness. And uh, I spoke to a couple of my mentors asking if what they did. And they were just like, you know, why don't you pursue this on, you, on your own? Why isn't this something you should do on your own? And um, I thought about it. And then I started to my job. It was busy. I didn't do it. And then, uh, again, I was speaking at Academy to one of my friends, Will Park. And he again brought it up. He's like, you know, uh, I, he, he was saying he drives an hour and he was um, to one of his satellites once a week. And how a lot of people in our field, retina is a very commuting heavy specialty. And I don't know if that's different than comprehensive or ophthalmology or cataract surgery. But for us, we commute a ton because we drive to where our patients are to give them their medical retina therapy, such as injections. So he again brought up the idea of doing it on my own. And I said, I didn't really have the resources or the knowledge. And he said, well, I'm sure you could figure it out. And, you know, kind of did the research and we started November 2016 now. So it's been about a year and a half. Well, it's a, it's really impressive the amount of content you've been able to create in that amount of time. Uh, what's what's interesting about that as as you're explaining that as a cataract surgeon for the first six years or so, I commuted uh, very heavily, and so I sort of had the same experience where I was on the road a lot, at least an hour each way, and found myself getting pretty bored with either listening to the radio or just the standard uh, music, et cetera. And, and like you said, with your runs, I wanted to make uh, more use of that time. I wanted to, in some way, invest in myself during that time, whether that was books on tape or other things. And that's when I found podcasting. And um, my first podcast that, I, that really got me hooked was Serial. Um, have you listened to Serial? Did you ever listen to that? No, one? what is it about? So no, serial is, is, is not ophthalmology related. So, you know, you, if you're if you're strictly interested in medical content, it's not for you. But it got me hooked. And it's one of these episodes where every week they sort of unpack this long form storytelling. And it was about a crime that was allegedly committed and a lot of the controversy surrounding that. There was a second season that was actually about Bo Bergdahl, um, the army deserter. Um, so there's been two uh, seasons, but that really is what got me hooked into this media. And and the other thing was simultaneously, I had a friend who was an ER physician who had his own podcast, who actually invited me to come on to his podcast, and um, you know explain a little bit about you know some pearls for ophthalmology in the ER. So sort of uh, those things happening almost simultaneously, I thought, you know, maybe maybe there's a room for a, a podcast in ophthalmology and that, you know, I guess the rest is history. Now we've got a lot of different podcasts in our field. I think that's just fantastic. You know, it's interesting when we have good ideas, um, I think everyone's natural inclination is to try to convince someone else to do that. <laughs> and a right, lot of right. times, it's, you, know, you, you present the good idea and, and people say, well, go for it. You should do that. And then you're stuck with this go, no-go decision on whether you're going to pursue your own idea. And uh, I just want to applaud you for being willing to be the author, be the creator, and actually put yourself out there a little bit. That's my history. It's a little bit shared with yours. Yeah, I, and I, again, I think a, a very valuable piece of advice one of my friends gave me, you know, I self-produced the first couple of episodes and he was like, look, as you get busier clinically, this is something you want to do consistently and make contact. You need to recruit people to help you. And uh, that's when I reached out through the medical school at University of Miami. And it started with Louis Kai. He was a third-year medical student at the time who had a background and interest in audio engineering. It was something he did for fun. And he was also going into ophthalmology. And 
now we have a team of three medical students, Louis, Mike, and uh, Angela Chang. And those, those guys are invaluable. Uh, it's invaluable to have some support when doing this. Cause at some point it's just not feasible. Um, especially retinas kind of a retinas ophthalmology. It's not, it's not like we're, you know, neurosurgeons where we're in the OR for 10 hours at a time, but we do have sometimes unpredictable schedules and, and call and, and that can kind of affect how consistently we can produce the content. And one of the things we really strive to do from the beginning was be consistent, uh, to try to create a consistent workflow that, at least once a week, there would be an episode, uh, which is ambitious, but doable with all the support we have from everyone on the team pitching in. Yeah, that's hard to do when you're a one-man show. Um, so I, I may need to take take your advice on that and recruit some other um, co-contributors because it is, it's a lot to try and keep a show interesting and fresh. I want to get into your background a little bit. And you know, this is sort of a standard question, but I want to hear your uh, you know, your history, how did you decide to become a doctor? Um, was medicine something that you grew up knowing you wanted to do? Was it something you came to later in your uh, academic career? When did you decide that being a physician was going to be uh, the right decision for you? So it's funny, you know, the cliche is you're a second generation Asian immigrant with uh, two physician parents as I was. And I'm one of five. My oldest sister was going to medical school, people assume that this is something that either your parents pushed you into it or you always had an idea you wanted to be a physician. And to be completely honest, neither of those was true. My, my parents didn't really push me to do anything in particular. Um, and my dad passed away when I was young. My mom had her hands full raising five kids. And in terms of me, what I wanted to do, I didn't really think about becoming a physician until you know, late in high school, something I thought about. But really, it was in college that I made that final decision. And Again, it, it was born out of a lot of things that drove a lot of us to medicine. It was a desire to be in a field where we can make a tangible difference in people's lives and give back and help um, while combining that with you know our own passions for science, medicine, engineering, whatever our passions may be. As far as ophthalmology, ophthalmology was a late decision for me. I think most medical students will decide before I did. I decided towards the end of my third year, uh, which puts you in a little bit of a time crunch when you're applying. But um, I had signed up for an elective uh, Again, kind of fishing, not knowing what I wanted to do. And I did that elective February of my third year. And within a week, I was hooked. And it's funny you brought up why not cataract surgery. You know, you're a cataract surgeon. I'm a retinal surgeon. And it was really cataract surgery that hooked me. Just watching cataract surgery, walking, watching them. I was in the OR watching residents do cataract surgery at the VA. And I thought it was exceptional. I just thought seeing them post-op day one, post-op week one, you kind of see that impact you can have. And the, the objectivity, even though nothing in ophthalmology is completely objective, it was really the objectivity of a lot of the things versus the nebulousness of a lot of other areas of medicine that really attracted me. So that that was kind of my ophthalmology origin story. And the people inspired me, again, were the residents at that time, um, Will Park, uh, Ryan Isom, Kara Cavuto, all at that time first-year residents who I'd worked with in the clinic who really took me under their wing. And then the attendings I worked with, Carol Karp, Byron Lamb, and, and Tom Johnson, who ironically enough, none of them are retinal surgeons. Carol Karp's a corneal surgeon. Byron Lamb, a neuro-ophthalmologist, and Tom Johnson, an oculoplastic surgeon. Those were really my primary mentors and a medical student who inspired me. Yeah, cataract surgery is the gateway drug, don't you think, for ophthalmology? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't, if you don't like cataract surgery, you don't end up going into ophthalmology, I think. Yeah. I think it's a reasonable thing to say. Yeah, and, and you're right. There is something really beautiful about the objective nature of cataract surgery um, where you can see it. It's not a question of whether someone has a cataract or not. And really day one you see the result and you know for me I love sports growing up I was an avid baseball player I played basketball I played soccer but baseball was really my 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 sport 
And what I liked about baseball was sort of keeping track of my batting average, keeping track of my on-base percentage, keeping track of, you know, errors, all those things. And I find that cataract surgery, and, and maybe this is a weird thing that only I think of, but I think cataract surgery, if that's what you do primarily, it's the closest thing to sports we have in medicine where you are a performance-driven practitioner and you mm-hmm. know really quickly whether you hit a home run or a strikeout. Whereas a lot of other surgeries, you really have to wait weeks or months to know how you did. And I like, personally, I like that um, immediate gratification of knowing, you know, did I do a good job or did I not? Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I think that the other thing that's interesting is, for example, I think one of the failings of retina, at least with a traditional imaging system, I, I remember watching one retinal surgery as a medical student and I had no idea what was going on. I, I thought cataract surgery was so beautiful also as a medical student because you can watch on the screen and you you can see every step as they're describing. And, you know, Dr. Carp would push me. She said, OK, this next one, I want you to tell me all the steps, you know, tell me paracentesis and the viscoelastic and the main wound, et cetera. And you could see and visualize all of that. And in a lot of not, not only in, in retina, but in other fields, general surgery example, as a medical student, especially if you're assisting, you can't quite see everything that's going on. And so that tangible, immediate gratification from putting a lens in a bag and then also just being able to see what's going on and being able to recognize, hey, I can identify the steps that the surgeons are doing and there is a very linear kind of algorithm where we get from point A to point B and we know at point B, like you said, where, where we are. Yeah, I, I, totally, I totally agree with that. So switching gears just a little bit, I know that you are in academics, you're at Baskin Palmer. Um, and how, how often are you involved with the residents there? Is that something that you are doing rather frequently? Is that a, 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 an occasional interaction? How, how, how involved are you with the residents there? So that's, that's one of the primary reasons I, I wanted to come back and get back is, uh, as a fellow at Wills, it worked a lot with the residents and it's one of my passions and coming back, I actually work with them once a week. So I staff the resident, uh, retina laser clinic. So this is a clinic that, sees a lot of uh, indigent patients or uninsured patients who have severe, mostly almost all severe diabetic retinopathy. Uh, Many, unfortunately, were so advanced they present with neovascular glaucoma and uh, tractional retinal detachments, really, really bad pathology. And and this is kind of a mutually beneficial situation where um, the the residents, I get the the experience of teaching them how to laser, teaching them the nuances of how to take care of these patients. Uh, and the patients um, get excellent care in this clinic. The residents really, really do an exceptional job of taking care of them. So I get that once a week uh, exposure, and then I'll staff their cataracts from time to time, uh, which I have to say, that is one of the most challenging things I've ever experienced is um, staffing cataract surgery. God bless the people who staffed us when we were in training, but uh, very, very interesting to staff someone because cataract surgery again is different than retinal surgery. Like we said, like there's a point A and a point B. And you want to get kind of linearly from point A to point B without a lot of detours. Whereas retina is kind of like a, a maze where four, four different ways could take you to the same result. But uh, but yeah, that, I love working with them. They're, they're really wonderful people and very, very impressive. And uh, recently joined the residency selection committee too. And that's always humbling just to see the great people who are going to ophthalmology. Ophthalmology has, has never been more popular, I think. And I think the reasons are the same reasons that drove us into it, which is just rapidly evolving technology on top of the objectivity and tan- tangible satisfaction we talked about. Yeah, so you, you actually brought up a number of things I want to dive into a little bit. Uh, the first one, I'm going to 100% agree, staffing cataract surgery is infinitely harder than performing cataract surgery or learning cataract surgery. 
Um, mm -hmm. It is the only thing I can compare it to is um, I'm teaching my daughter how to drive. How to drive? Yes, I, I was going to say the same thing. That is, um, she's doing great, um, but I'm not. I don't think I'm a great teacher, and that is um, <laughs> something I've had to wrestle with uh, because I'm I, I'm constantly on edge. And so I'm, I'm really not a great um, attending in that regard. I, I tried it for a couple of years just as a volunteer faculty. And I'm actually back on faculty at, at the University of Kentucky doing some lectures and having residents come over and observe. But there is a special – it takes a special human being to be able to guide a, a resident through a cataract surgery. And I just want to thank uh, Seema Kapoor and Doug Katz and um, all the attendings at UK who helped me and guided me and trained me. Uh, and it's, it really is unbelievably difficult. And residents don't really appreciate that. So mm -hmm. if you're a resident right. listening to this, thank your attending the next time they're willing to sit in the, in the chair next to you. Just thank them because it's a lot harder than you would believe. The other thing I'd like to ask is, um, as a former resident, you know, we both are former residents, obviously, and now as an attending and now as someone on a selection committee, what do you think makes for a good resident? Is there something that you look for or a characteristic that you've seen in residents that you've worked with that makes them a particular delight to work with or particularly effective in their um, trajectory as they try and get over these steep learning curves? Yeah, I'm glad you didn't ask me what I think makes a good resident based on their application because I think that's extremely difficult. And uh, that's a question we're actually looking into right now. Um, we're going to try to do some research into that factor. Identifying good residents, at least in my experience, and, and I'd be open to your opinions as well, I think the best residents, it's really that they're self-motivated and that they really care about delivering good care to their patients. So natural ability, you know, what accolades in terms of their background, pedigree, all those things, you know, really go out the window. The question is, when you have a patient in front of you and you're a resident and you're trying to still build your knowledge base and your skill set, um, even when things don't go well, let's say you're a resident and you operate and you have a complication. What is your approach? Are you someone who does do the utmost to try to give your patient the best outcomes? Do you spend more time with your patients when they don't have the best outcomes? And do you, do you seek out answers? Do you, do you read on your own? Do you, do you go to attendings? Do you go to mentors for advice? The best residents are the ones who are willing to work hard and they put their work hard as not always necessarily in their best interest, but it's in the best interest of their patients and often their co-residents in terms of forming a better team atmosphere uh, in, in a residency. And every residency is different. We have a large residency with seven residents a year and teamwork is super important. So our best residents are the residents who are willing to help others and put their patients first. You know, you, you, are, you hit the nail on the head. Um, one thing I would say is honesty when it hurts. I think that, yes. is, a, that yeah. is a key factor that we don't talk a lot about because I think we just assume that everyone is honest if you're a doctor and you've taken the Hippocratic Oath. Um, not to suggest that, that we are dishonest as a profession. I think we're incredibly honest. But there's a certain characteristic of humility, um, willingness to um, take the blame when it's, when it's appropriate, and willing to fall on the sword uh, for the patient or for their co-resident. And not not be sneaky, not um, trying to you know shuffle paperwork around to make things look better than than it really was. So I would much rather have a resident who came to me and say, uh, you know, I I I blew it. You know, I I had you know I made a mistake. 
I was thinking this was the right path and decided to go this way. It turns out that that was wrong, wrong diagnosis or, you know, surgical error, et cetera. It's so much better and refreshing when someone comes to you humbly and talks about a, uh, or is willing to talk about their um, mistakes or areas that they need to improve upon. That's when you can really invest in someone. That's when you can really um, help them bridge that gap. It's the residents who try to potentially show no sign of weakness and cover up signs of weakness that you perhaps worry about because you don't know how they're going to do on their own. Right. And that connects to staffing in the OR because unlike driving where you could install a brake pedal on the passenger side, you don't have that option in surgery, except you expect the resident or fellow, in my case, I staff fellows a lot as well, to, to press that brake pedal when you tell them to. Right. And having someone who's willing to listen, but also willing to ask for help right. when they need it and, and willing to kind of take that responsibility to say, you know, I'm not comfortable right now or I can't see exactly what you're showing me. I don't want to do this because I think it's unsafe. Right. Those are the res- residents or fellows I respect the most. The people who, and again, dishonesty sounds like a really bad, bad thing, but I think we're, we could all be susceptible to it in the right circumstance. And, and something even as simple as being honest with your patient if something didn't go the way you expected. And they always talk about, for example, with malpractice or omic uh, type claims, that one of the biggest problems people have is it's not necessarily that the doctor was not nice or that the complication was worse than other complications. It was that the physician didn't communicate. And that's when you talk about honesty where it hurts. It's really difficult to, to confront a patient where you've had a complication and have those honest conversations and see that patient and have those com- conversations. And even the best of us can feel the nerve not to have those conversations or not to be completely bluntly honest. And being bluntly honest and being kind at the same time uh, is something that's critical in retina, for example, because unlike cataract surgery, you put a lens in the bag, you, you get an idea how the patient's going to do. You know, I can repair a detached retina, and I tell the fellows this all the time, but I need to be honest with the patient beforehand, depending on how long it's been detached or the status of the macula. We don't necessarily know how the vision's going to be. And, and so telling patients that honestly from the beginning is super important to set expectations. I 100% agree with you. I think it's, and for some reason, I don't think that has been, I don't think there's been a overt focus on teaching that to residents or expecting that. And I think that may be a little bit of a cultural shift that is really important because if you, if you learn how to be honest when it hurts when you're a resident, I think you're going to be a much better doctor when you are, are out on your own. Right. And, and I think that going back to your conversation about the best residents, the, the, the final thing, again, it, it's not necessarily how much you read or how much you know, but the best residents, they read for the right reasons and they know stuff for the right reasons. It's not necessarily about ego, but it's about, like you said, I made a mistake. How can I learn to, to get better from one of my attendings in fellowship uh, used to say that complications are part of doing surgery. But if you have complications of the same nature over and over again, then you're not doing your work as the physician. So you're going to have times when things don't go according to plan, but that's when you take a step back and you try to figure out what went wrong, what could you do differently to avoid it. And if you're not doing that as a resident, you're not going to do that when you go out as an attending. That's right. That's exactly right. So I want to switch gears a little bit um, and talk about your perspective on the field of retina. where do you feel like there are the biggest unmet needs perhaps in retina or you can answer a different way and say what technology on the horizon 
most excites you and, and has the potential to be transformative or disruptive in, in a good way to your field? Well, retina, retina is in a really exciting time, like much of medicine and ophthalmology. But I think the biggest things from, you're just talking about an overall burden, is from a medical retina standpoint, how we handle patients with macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy going forward in the future. And right now, we anti-VEGF was one of the biggest breakthroughs in medicine when it was first, um, when the publication originally came out in New England Journal of Medicine, the Marina results back in 2006, I believe. One of the most efficacious drugs ever to be reported in a, in a phase three study. And it's dramatically changed that we've had patients who for years were going blind and now we have therapy that could reverse that. But there's now be developed, A, not every patient responds to these drugs, and B, these medications don't last uh, as long as we like. And patients are now dependent, in a sense, on coming to the doctor to maintain their vision. And we also have dry macular degeneration, which is not addressed by any of those therapies and is becoming a larger cause of blindness because, as we've seen in many studies, many patients with wet AMD that's arrested with anti-VEGF end up to develop geographic atrophy. So I think from a medical retina standpoint, Dry macular degeneration is really going to be critical uh, in terms of what therapies we have to not only arrest it, but could we reverse it potentially? Um, there are stem cell trials, for example, looking into stem cells for geographic atrophy with from uh, dry macular degeneration. And then diabetic retinopathy is, is not just a, a national problem, it's an international problem. As diabetes grows worldwide, blindness-related diabetic retinopathy is critical in terms of what it does for our workforce, because the patients who get diabetic retinopathy are much younger than AMD patients. And the patients who get diabetic retinopathy, again, can have irreversible damage. Longer term agents will help with wet macular generation. They may help with diabetic retinopathy, but that's where telemedicine screening and identifying these patients at risk, not only in the US, but internationally, abroad, in rural areas, that's really where a lot of the breakthroughs are happening. From a surgical perspective, surgery has never been, I mean, it's never been better to be a retinal surgeon, probably like it's never been better to be an anterior segment surgeon. I mean, the technologies that are available are amazing. I think the things that will be exciting, 3D heads up visualization has many, many potential benefits and among them will be integrated intraoperative OCT. So we really get a 3D view of, of the retina as we work on it. Understanding the dynamics of the vitreous gel, which for years has been better visualized with stains, but still is not extremely well visualized in the clinic. And while better visualized, not awesomely visualized in the OR. And then how can we just make our surgeries? Uh, how can we improve our outcomes? And, and one of the things that really interests me is retinal detachments, for example. So, you know, we can do everything right. And the, the two primary goals of retinal detachment are to fix the retinal detachment, but also to get the maximum vision uh, from a patient who's been losing vision. And in macula-involving cases, like I said, it can be very unpredictable. So are there things we can do to, A, reduce completely the risk of, of PVR and scar tissue and things that cause recurrent attachments? And B, if I, we can do everything right and take a patient to the OR who presented with macula-involving detachment, what can we do to restore the integrity of the outer retina and give this patient vision? Because, again, the joke about retina is, quote-unquote, anatomic success, is that we say the patient's attached or the patient attached, but the patient is not necessarily happy because they don't have the vision that they, they'd like. And sometimes their vision is not very good despite everything we do. If we can figure out a way to pharmacologically or some, some other measure during surgery, after surgery to ameliorate that, that will go a long way towards improving outcomes in our field. Well, Jay, this has been a fantastic conversation. It's been wonderful to hear a little bit more of your story. Um, I know the residents are getting a great experience on at Baskin-Palmer, uh, partially because you're there. Um, along with some other friends uh, down there like Jorge Fortune and uh, Kendall Donaldson, friends of mine. 
So, Jay, I thank you so much for coming on uh, the podcast. Uh, we look forward to hearing more from you down the road. And if you ever have any other contributions you'd like to make, you're always welcome to come back. And uh, you're always welcome as a, as a repeat guest on here. So, Jay, thank you so much. Uh, why don't you give us um, a, a little bit of a shout out so that if people want to hear more from you and your podcast, how do they find that? So it's super easy if you type into any uh, web address bar on your phone or computer, retinapodcast.com, R-A-T-I-N-A podcast.com. Uh, also, if you go to Apple Podcast app or if you have an Android, you look in the podcast, uh, Android podcast store, just search for Retina Podcast. It will be the, the first hit and uh, you can subscribe and listen to episodes there or on the website. Wonderful. Well, Jay, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate you coming on. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Dr. Gary Wirtz. The ability to spot a need in your own profession is one thing. Deciding to meet that need on your own is another. That's the challenge Jay took on when he decided to start his Retina podcast. Thanks to his willingness to take the leap into podcasting, there's another valuable resource out there for ophthalmologists. It's an exciting time for Retina, and we thank Jay for offering his wisdom and perspectives on the field's future and for telling us his own story. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thanks for listening. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.